0: Hi, Gauri here. We've collected the best insights from the first 20 Knowledge Base Ninjas episodes into a clear and concise ebook. Simply send a blank email to ninja at bcast.email. That's ninja at bcast.email and it will be sent right back to you. Thank you. Welcome to the Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast. Where Gallery Ram Kumar of Document 360 finds the best SaaS self-service knowledge bases in the world and then interviews their creators. Let's get started with today's episode. Good day everyone. Our guest today is Raj Kalan, principal technical writer at OpenText. Welcome to the Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast, Raj. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you, Gauri. I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me in today.
0: Fantastic. So, Raj, I have, I have looked at your LinkedIn profile and uh, I have just introduced very little about you. So, please feel free to introduce a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and uh, and then you can also explain how you initially got into documentation, please.
1: Sure, I'll be happy to. Uh, so, my name is Raj Kieran. I'm uh, uh, from Bangalore in South India. I was born and brought up here. And... Uh, one of the things uh, which I've been doing uh, right from the beginning of my career is, uh, you know, kind of being uh, those uh, where I've been involved around content, whether it's delivering content, creating content, or consuming content. So uh, I kind of started off my career as uh, uh, as a music journalist, uh, writing you know short articles and blogs on uh, various music scenes back in the early two thousands, and uh, from then on, I kind of moved into technical training, that's because I was kind of uh, always interested in technology, in the programming side of uh, things, the gaming side of things, and the hardware kind of uh, uh, side uh, built a lot of gaming rigs back in the day. And that was something which kind of interested me a lot. So I think uh, uh, that was like something which interested me. And I thought technology will really help me in terms of making a great uh, career in addition to what I had been doing. So I started working as a technical trainer, to train people on all sorts of things like computer hardware, uh, uh, usage maintenance or uh, uh, training for technical supports so or uh, folks on you know customer service skills, telephone handling skills, and also computer software troubleshooting. You know stuff of uh, stuff of that nature. And uh, during this period, I also kind of uh, used to always look at uh, the kind of training material itself, which uh, we used to hand out to people. You know, it used to be in booklets, or sometimes it used to be very clumsily put together, or sometimes it used to be, uh, there used there's be no real direction. There's to be no real uh, flow to the content so uh, I started working with another team closely so this was at Dell where I uh, started my career uh, with the technology side of things and I started working with a bunch of teams who were creating content mainly for customers at the time and we said hey you know what why don't you know kind of put in some sort of cheat sheets or some sort of uh, you know handbooks uh, which are uh, folks on the floor or our technicians or our field technicians can kind of use like a uh, ready retina and uh, while we were doing that, I kind of realized that, you know, there is, this is a whole different world out there, you know, for somebody who's not exposed to that side of things. Initially, it might be that, hey, you know what, it's just a manual. Uh, but when you actually start authoring one, there are a lot of other considerations. There are a lot of other things which you start, you know, kind of thinking about and you start uh, kind of sometimes worrying about what kind of content should be there or is this content uh, suitable for all the different people who are going to be uh, reading this and don't need to probably include images or don't have to, you know, all those kinds of uh, things. So eventually after a a bunch of time in the technical training field, I kind of slowly got to hear from another colleague, uh, um, who was a trainer himself, a little bit about technical writing. At that point, I had absolutely no idea that something called technical writing even existed, even though I had... um, Write a bunch of technical documents and stuff, but I never really knew that there was an entire field completely dedicated and a bunch of professionals have been doing this very diligently and, uh, you know, something been going on for decades uh, now. So this was back in about 2008, 2009. And uh, that's when I kind of uh, tried and connected on uh, my own volition with a few technical writers within my previous company. And I try to, you know, kind of understand, hey, I mean, I do a lot of instructional design stuff and I'm developing content, I'm writing material. And I see some of your documents on, you know, the support portals for external uh, customers. And I see a lot of overlap, you know, some some things which I write for my internal audiences is kind of repurposed for an external audience from your end. And I think, you know, we do a lot of things similar, at least when it comes to working with content, even though the audience is different, the nuances of how we approach things are different. But, Essentially, it is uh, still writing. It's just, it is still about simplifying information and uh, you know making sure people who consume that information can su- uh, be successful at whatever task uh, he or she is willing to perform. And uh, that's how I you know kind of uh, got a wind of uh, what technical writing is. I researched a little bit more. I found out that it's fantastic, and there are a lot of people, there are a lot of uh, literature around this, and. Uh, Eventually I got in touch with uh, internal people, internal job postings, you know that kind of thing, and uh, officially moved in as a technical writer in the year 2010. Perhaps uh, in the beginning of the year 2010 uh, at Dell. Uh, that's where my first taste of real technical uh, writing was. I kind of was introduced to different uh, kinds of things like you know style guides, and uh, repositories, and version control, and uh, data XML, and uh, reusing content, and how do you write for different kinds of audiences and uh, different uh, things of uh, that nature. I started there initially documenting for hardware products. You know, one of the first teams I worked with uh, used to write the customer-facing documentation for uh, Inspiron and XPS laptop computers or gaming computers. You know, quick start guides and things of uh, that sort. And eventually, I moved on to writing a little more complex stuff for on-field technicians of how to, uh, you know, do things like disassemble a laptop or assemble a laptop or a configure a server or a storage, storage uh, system, a computer network, uh, that kind of documentation. And so initially the exposure was mainly towards the hardware uh, side of things. And eventually I kind of also got a taste of uh, the hardware angle, where we had a lot of uh, systems which would use certain software to connect to networks and uh, things of that nature. And uh, when I kind of uh, got introduced to the software aspect of it, I realized that you know, again, within technical documentation itself, the way you treat uh, hardware documentation and how you write for software, or let's say networking or a cloud-based product, is again completely different. There are a lot of other things uh, which you know uh, you ought to consider. And uh, I kind of learned different things about uh, those different uh, aspects. So uh, immediately after Dell, I moved into with uh, Cisco, which was a completely different uh, shift for me. Uh, although there was a fair amount of hardware documentations involved, you know, stuff like routers and switches and uh, things of that nature. but uh, mainly, I was working with the WebEx team, you know, something like uh, Zoom, what we're using right now for this call. And I just write the backend documentation, administration guides, uh, deployment guides, and uh, stuff for like that. And that really uh, kind of uh, taught me a lot about how, how vast the scope is for uh, software documentation and uh, how, for the different kinds of audiences who use software documentation and why it's absolutely necessary to make sure that your documentation is very well-scoped, this adequate amount of research and this good amount of liaisoning with your development teams before you even write a single word. And uh, that's more or less the direction I've been going with uh, in terms of documentation, Mainly being with software networking. So I'm currently, uh, right now, with OpenText, we make some fantastic uh, uh, enterprise-wide storage and uh, storage solutions and and, uh, those kind of products. And also, uh, we've been kind of uh, very open to experimenting based on customer feedback about different ways we can uh, deploy our documentation, different ways customers can uh, consume it. And the main idea is that uh, right now we believe that the kind of media you're using to deliver your documentation is immaterial. In today's world, everything is everything is topsy-tubsy. So yep. traditional documentation goes straight out the window and whatever works for you may not work for the others and whatever might be working for another company just because somebody else is doing it does not mean it will work for us and We've been working a lot with a lot of uh, non-traditional kind of uh, delivery systems as well. So that's more or less what my journey's been so far. Rob.
0: Fantastic, uh, Raj. So it's an amazing story and journey to hear. And uh, uh, I think it's almost nearly ten years now, isn't it? You start officially starting started your digital right. writer skills. So super. so in according to you, what's your documentation process at Open Text, and who do you normally get involved?
1: Yeah. So our documentation process is uh, so we have different teams which are geographically uh, spread over uh, Different continents. We have a bunch of teams: US, Canada, few in uh, Europe, and uh, we have a team here in Bangalore and a bunch of people in Hyderabad. And uh, each of each of the sites have complete ownership of certain products end to end. So, uh, for example, my team has about eight to ten people. We report to a documentation uh, manager here. And uh, each of us takes up end-to-end ownership of one complete product or more than one product, uh, depending on the complexity of the product or the scope of documentation uh, required for that particular product. And we work with different teams uh, to make sure that all the documentation is delivered at the time the product is made available to the customer. So our teams primarily, apart from our documentation team, we are constantly working with our engineering teams. So our engineering team comprises of program managers who have uh, more insight about uh, what the market is looking at, what kind of products they want to introduce, what's the monetary benefit uh, for the company with this product, how do we, how is this product differentiating from a bunch of other products by other competitors out there in the market? So we gather those kind of insights right in the beginning where we you know have these planning sessions and uh, you know kind of uh, mentally prepare, even though nothing writing there's no planning even going on at that stage when it comes to documentation but uh, there is an idea being formed in your head that yes so this is what the product is shaping up to look like in the next couple of months so maybe we want to you know see and scope how much effort do you think we'll need do I probably need uh, you know an illustrator for this product or maybe do you think uh, this is a product which could really help with uh, you know having a more number of videos you know mm-hmm. so that kind of scoping happens at uh, that stage and okay. after that, the teams themselves, they follow an agile kind of process. Of course, agile implementation is different in different companies, but uh, it's, some, it's similar to the traditional uh, agile approach. We have two-week uh, uh, sprints where a you know, small product or a feature is developed uh, towards that time. So we liaise very closely with our engineering and development and uh, testing folks uh, to check what they're working with. To so first of all, analyze if that particular feature is something which has a dock impact if it has a doc impact, where does it fit in? Because we have a bunch of uh, different kinds of guides for each product. We might have a user guide, we might have an administrator's guide, we might have any other kind of guide. So we'll then scope where it is uh, required. There might be a bunch of features developed sometimes during a sprint, which mm-hmm. might not have any documentation impact at all. Right. Yeah. So that's the kind of scoping we do at that point. And uh, what we kind of try and do is start building the documentation as and when the engineering teams are... Uh, working on their features. So let's say they complete a small bit of feature. Uh, we don't uh, really uh, want to wait towards the end, thinking like, hey, you know well, what, it's okay. It's just a small feature, so it won't take me that long to document. Let me wait till the end, and we get all of it together, and put it together, and send it out for review. You know. So uh, we kind of learned it the hard way, and I'm sure you'll agree uh, that a lot of times that is one of the biggest challenges uh, taking writer's face, yeah. is that, you know, Towards the last minute, the engineers are busy. a lot of things going on at their end and we are bringing down their necks to get our documentation inputs and things can get a little bit sketchy.
0: Yeah. So to
1: avoid that, we have put together a very good process uh, where we have like a ticketing system where uh, you know, for each sprint, let's say I have a sprint for the next two weeks, I kind of pick up a few doc tasks. Let's say I'm working on product A, B, and C. I'll say, hey, okay, for product A, I will do this. I will document these two features for product B. I will contact this engineer, find out uh, this, or you know something which I've already completed. I'll send this off for review and incorporate the inputs. So you plan your, your doc task, and we plan it in terms of like a story point, just like a typical agile system. So mm-hmm. approximately about 25 story points in two weeks is about six hours of work uh, each day, six to seven hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of make sure that uh, during this time, we start working on, each one of those and it also gives a lot of transparency coverage. So while I'm working on a doc task, my manager knows what I'm doing. And also my product manager for that particular product which I'm documenting is also aware that hey Raj just picked up this for our product and he's working on this particular feature. Yeah. So that becomes really useful because they can, you know, always sometimes come back and say in the middle saying, Hey, you know what, uh, we are scrapping that feature, or that's been moved to the next release. Yeah. Or right now, uh, hold on to it because we still don't know where this is uh, leading
0: Fitting, to. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, so that kind of uh, synchronization uh, happens uh, wonderfully when uh, we follow this kind of an approach, uh, working with different teams. And of course, once the sprints are complete, we keep sharing the documents, uh, get the review inputs. Towards the end, we have like peer reviews, managerial reviews, editorial reviews, uh, kind of a, a very standard uh, synchronized uh, sign-off process. So basically, we make sure that everything, the documentation part of things are all clear, tied off, signed off, and everyone is happy at least a month before the product actually goes uh, for the launch. And you just take Fantastic. up any minor things until that point. So that's typically in a nutshell what process is for.
0: Fantastic. That's uh, a very well-planned uh, process, uh, um, uh, Raj. Uh, just to add to that, uh, what do you, so that's a quite long process um, uh, hours of work you put in the two weeks of sprint, right? So, during such times, what do you think do as important factors while creating documentation? What are your important
1: factors? I think the most of the time, Gauri, um, I'm sure this is probably true for most technical writers as well, is that maybe I'll spend, I'll probably just need a day to actually write down my stuff into those guides which you were talking about. But gathering that information, finding out what is relevant, is the technical information accurate or do I need to contact somebody else who has more information about it? Maybe download a copy of that program and run a few tests and see if it's working as it's intended. Uh, also, maybe review certain one of the UI and give the team feedback saying that, hey, you know, it's uh, over here, you say this is how it works, but when I test it, that's not how, it's, how things are happening. So you say a pop-up appears here, but nothing appears unless you do something else. So all that kind of research and groundwork is mostly what uh, I spend my time with. I spend a lot of time on calls with my engineering uh, folks. I spend a lot of time communicating via email and calls with my uh, program manager uh, to see about uh, any changes and constantly talk about what we want to uh, document and if it is relevant, if it makes sense, and if it definitely adds value to the documentation. So that's most of uh, where our time is spent uh,
0: Fantastic. So, a proper, good uh, groundwork always gives you the benefit of uh, spending less time in the later stages of your documentation.
1: Uh, absolutely.
0: Super, Raj. So, uh, what impact will AR or VR have on documentation? And I think um, I would like you to first explain what is AR slash VR because it's something new I have not heard. Um, please explain to our audience what does that mean?
1: Uh, sure, Gauri. So, augmented and virtual reality is has been around for quite some time and it's mainly an offshoot of uh, fundamentally artificial intelligence uh, technologies. So uh, you have computer vision and a lot of other uh, different terms uh, which are involved here. So just to give you a simple uh, explanation of what AR is, uh, uh, let me first talk about that. AR is nothing but you're using your surroundings around you and placing virtual information between your eye and the external world. So to give you a simple example, uh, I mean, your car reverse cameras, right? You look at the car's reverse camera and it shows you those yellow lines at the back. And uh, you know, if you're going off-road or going to hit something at the back, it flashes red or beeps or you know, does something. Mm-hmm. So that is an indirect uh, example of augmented reality because in reality, if you go back and look outside, those yellow and red lines don't exist in the real world. True. But, but what is happening is you know, there is a digital projection or some digital overlay of information that is being placed between you and the real world, which is helping you achieve something, helping you do something. It could be giving you information, it could be helping you navigate, or it could be something purely for entertainment purposes. So that's augmented reality. And right now it's become very popular, very powerful, because computing devices have evolved so much over the years. One of the closest examples, most recently, I think, Pokemon Go. That game was arranged two to three years ago. People were crazy about it. And that's a fantastic example of augmented reality, where you just turn on your phone, turn on your camera. Your camera will act as an augmented reality sensor. So whenever it looks around, it places some virtual objects like these Pokemon you know, uh, creatures between you and the real world where you can collect them, play with them, uh, stuff like that. So that's one example. And most recently, I think, Google had something called Google Animals, where uh, you know you can go search for a panda or a lion on the internet. And on your phone, you can click on, you know, watch this in 3D or watch this in your room. And you could project a real-life 3D model of that uh, animal right in your living room while you can still see your surroundings. So basically, that's digital information being placed uh, in the real world. So that's augmented reality. Virtual reality is, again, the same thing. You're, again, displaying a lot of uh, virtual or digital information. But then you're wearing something called a head-mounted device or, uh, you know, a headset where you're not able to see anything around you. And all you're seeing is being projected into that headset. So you can be uh, looking at instructions on how to you know, perform surgery, uh, instructions on maybe how to work uh, with safety uh, materials or hazardous materials. You could be looking at uh, you know, playing a sword fighting game or driving a car. So a bunch of different things are uh, possible with uh, AR and VR. And uh, due to the advent of machine learning and artificial intelligence, These have become a lot more smarter, simpler devices like your mobile phones have now become extremely powerful to deliver these experiences, which wasn't possible earlier. Uh, These technologies have been there around, even from the 80s and 90s, companies like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Ikea. A lot of people have been experimenting with these, but they're mainly constricted to the military or the academia or research domain because mostly they were very expensive. Computing power was hard to come by. But right now, even your normal phone has 6 GB of RAM, and that's fantastic. It has other stuff like you know, accelerometers, sensors, and cameras, and other things. So leveraging this technology for uh, a larger uh, audience has become a lot more easy, and there's a lot of traction, a lot of work uh, happening in that area from big players like Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, who want to you know kind of uh, uh, democratize uh, AR and VR.
0: mm mm-hmm. Um, So, what kind of uh, what impact do you think uh, AR or VR have on documentation, Raj? Uh,
1: so, for documentation, so my answer would be this: girl. So, basically, when you look at uh, AR and VR for documentation, I think it's going to be huge for uh, documentation dealing with hardware products. I mean, I come from companies which were mainly hardware product companies like Dell and, uh, for example, Cisco. Uh, so, for those kind of companies. It's, it could be a huge blessing because you have your product, you don't have, and somebody needs to, will eventually be using that product. And right now, how is that information delivered? Maybe let's say, for example, uh, you buy a new laptop computer, or I'll make it even more simple, let's say you buy a big 70 inch television. And uh, it's a smart television, it has a bunch of different ports and a bunch of different connectors and things of that nature. So your ideal way of knowing about that television currently would be it'll probably a quick start guide which comes inside the box. Or you might go to their company's website or look up a how-to video on YouTube, unboxing video, how to connect. But you can also simply deliver it via augmented reality or a person just downloads an app on their phone and just scans it with the mobile phone to your television. And any point of interest will light up on the television. For example, a small place will light up saying, hey, this is where you connect the power cord or this is where you connect the USB connectors, or so this is where you you know, have your remote control or your other options. Or you might also have a technical specification overlay. For example, I focus on the USB port. It might show me specific information about that or one level deeper, saying this is USB 3.0, this is the transfer speed, a bunch of other things. It could also help you with troubleshooting. If I point to a particular uh, option and say that, hey, I want to know how do I change, let's say the plasma screen. I have a replacement, I don't know how to do it. So it could also give me step-by-step instructions on how do I remove this, how do I unscrew something, where I need to connect the cables, what safety uh, considerations I must uh, keep in mind, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, if you probably uh, pick up any of the, uh, download IKEA app, of course, they make some fantastic furniture, and previously they have big booklets, right? Where they show you step-by-step how to assemble the boxes of furniture. Now it's just with an augmented reality app, you just scan the boxes, Different pieces will represent and digital overlay information. So it will probably say something like, hey, this dovetail joint A, make sure it's meeting with this part B. So now you have one edge of the table company. Now let's work with the other end. So you don't really have to look at a physical paper manual at all, and just visually all that information is being transmitted. So for hardware raw documentation, the possibilities are endless. And it could, I even see it as, you know, kind of doing away with a lot of traditional documentation if uh, it is implemented uh, well and adopted uh, well. Uh, But in terms of uh, software documentation, again, there are different possibilities. There is no real direct scope uh, where it can be as successful as uh, hardware documentation. But in software documentation, what uh, I'm at least uh, envisioning is that it will not replace anything which we currently have, but it will supplement that in, in certain uh, in certain scenarios for example augmented reality can be used uh, for example if you're let's say you bought a new software from from my company and it has and you are a system admin and you have to deploy that for 3,000 people and the deployment process is a complex one my PDF guide which I which is there on my support side is maybe 650 pages uh, which has a bunch of different things prerequisites installations you know different kinds of uh, connections and different things which you need to do before you get the software up and running and uh, configure it. What can be done with augmented reality is that each of your screens, or at least the important screens where some configuration information or something is being done, can be synced with augmented reality. So for example, a system admin is is stuck at, let's say, a certain screen. And he or she does not know what information goes in there. What do I need to enter here? Or what problem do I need to select? One option is they can go to my documentation, which already has that information. That could take some time. They might have to find out where it is within the documentation, identify where that is. Or I could just give them an app which they just scan the uh, screen or the screenshot or the software itself with the camera. And it identifies the screen elements. And it understands that, okay, hey, you know what, this person is looking at uh, the menu uh, setting screen. And it will immediately open up, let's say the PDF part Or uh, the information or a video of where that task is being performed from our existing documentation and bring it up to the user. So the user will save a lot of time and they're only getting what they're looking for rather than reading through a chunk of other uh, documentation. Uh, That is one. It can also be used for training purposes like creating 3D mascots and introducing products uh, to people. You have a new product, you want to uh, introduce it to a bunch of uh, 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 new customers. So you can use augmented reality workflows to, you know, show what is possible with the product in a more exciting way. So those are some of the possibilities coming.
0: mm Super. So, um, what does the term guided UI um, mean, Sraj? and how can how this can be applied to technical documentation?
1: So guided UI is uh, just like you know uh, having coach marks on your uh, mobile phone applications. You download a new app, you have. Uh, sometimes one or two uh, buttons or one or two small boxes appearing in different parts of the menu saying, okay, hey, click here to go to the menu. Yep. Uh, click on this drop down oh, and then you click on, okay, I got it. Mm-hmm. And you uh, proceed to use the app, right? So Guided UI is something similar, but for your uh, applications. It could be a on-premise application, it could be a cloud-based applications where I have different kinds of uh, highlights or markers which can come up and teach you how to perform a certain task or how to accomplish a certain task workflow. So for example, you log into the software for the very first time. And uh, let's say this is a um, let's say an accounting software where you need to generate an invoice. So maybe the first step will be you have a wizard which will plonk up and say, hey, it, uh, looks like it's the first time here. Do you want to see how to create a, a new invoice? And if you click on OK, it will guide you through the different steps. So you'll have a different colored marker, which will go to a certain section of the screen and say, OK, first click on Create. You click on Create. It will then give you options. Pick a type of invoice you want to create. Maybe it will give you one or two other kinds of information. Okay, this kind of invoice is used for this kind of billing. This invoice is used for so-and-so other thing. And it will walk you through different steps until you click on finish and create an invoice. So that same information can also be there in your documentation. But you are using some of that information to walk through your customer to actually perform tasks. And it kind of simplifies the process of, you know, not having to ever visit the documentation at all.
0: Super fantastic I I didn't know up until I spoke to you about the guided UI though I've used many times
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah I mean it's a great field and there are a lot of different kinds of uh, players in the market like a company called Whatfix from India does a lot of uh uh, uh services it makes it very easy to uh, do that and there are other uh, popular players as well and there are a lot of open source tools as well for companies who are strapped for uh, cash Oh uh, if you have a good development team you could use these to create wonderful Uh, guided UIs for your products.
0: Fantastic. Great. So I'm sure there might, you might have used some metrics to do this, but uh, what kind of reduction in workload have you seen since introducing quality documentation?
1: Uh, So one of the biggest things, uh, at least in uh, the current organization perspective is we've been very big on um, minimalism guidelines. So You know, we've just been wanting to cut down on anything that's unnecessary, anything that does not add value, anything that does not make uh, sense. Just because we've been having a guide from the last 15 years, doesn't mean we still need it. Nobody's using it. There's no value to the customer. Either we move the content here and there, or we'll just get rid of it. And uh, that minimalism approach has really improved the quality of of our documentation in terms of reducing the page count, reducing the number of documents uh, that need to be maintained. But it also, the biggest work it has reduced, at least for me personally and our teams personally, is that since we're doing minimalism, we aren't too thrilled to include screenshots anymore. So previously, if you had looked at any of our documentation uh, just to perform a task, you would have, for five steps, you would have five different screenshots. Things like, OK, if I click on file, uh, click on setting, click on this, click on OK, and a screenshot for each one of them. But those are, again, user elements. And we want to believe that a user is smart enough to look at what's there on the screen. You don't really have to walk somebody through each and every step, unless, of course, there is something which might be a little more complicated. And that's case by case basis, so we believe. And uh, so we're cut down on that completely. So our, our documentation is very crisp uh, right now. If what could be two pages with 10 screenshots is just a half a paragraph now. And we've also been you know, kind of experimenting with things like article based writing and a more uh, uh, conversational approach mm-hmm. rather than having a very rigid. Uh, structure where you say step number one, step number two, step number three, sub-step, et cetera. So we're trying to you now go away with that, experimenting with different uh, products, seeing what uh, works uh, best with us. And uh, that has definitely reduced. We have been uh, working a lot with our uh, information architects to kind of uh, improve our uh, authoring environments. Uh, one example to which I include our quality a lot is uh, to use uh, different types of variables in our XML. So if Similar content needs to be spread across seven different uh, guides. Mm -hmm. We can just tweak the code in our XML a little bit, and just you give a reference, a connection reference to the content, rather than moving that content physically uh, from one place to to another. So that saves us considerable time, eventually saves a lot of localization costs uh, as well. So that's some of the thing uh, which uh, has really been working out for us in terms of uh, improving the quality.
0: Super. So is uh, OpenText currently generating any organic search traffic from your knowledge base?
1: Uh, So our uh, search engine, so maybe our documentation is uh, uh, access-based. So if you buy one of our products, you'll be given a username and password. Okay. uh, And then you get to access. So there's not much of our documentation per se, which is Mm customer-facing. But within within our uh, internal help system, uh, we have implemented a lot of uh, different of uh, health protocols and different uh, best practices uh, using metadata and uh, different uh, keywords and tagging and that kind of uh, measures to make sure that somebody who's searching for something finds the relevant article, at least in the first one of pages.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Of course, if it's internal documentation, there's no possibility. Fantastic. Yeah, Super so uh, Raj, I think um, that's quite a lot we've covered in the last uh, 30 minutes, but we've not finished yet. Let's uh, go on to our rapid-fire round now. Sure. Um, so I'm going to take you back to your old good days. Um, who have you learned the most about documentation from in your career?
1: Uh, in my career, I would say it would be uh, more from my first mentor at, uh, at uh, Dell. So he was uh, this old gentleman named uh, Maker uh he used to be an editor he's worked in the medical field he used to teach English uh, in a school in New York so you know a, a very interesting uh person very well learned and uh, had a lot of insights uh, from him about how to approach documentation and most importantly he taught me how to unlearn a lot of things because since I came from a training and in instructional design mm-hmm. uh, content writing background the way I used to approach writing content uh was very different and uh he kind of uh, helped me move away from that uh, that structure and look at how do you focus on writing customer-facing instructions? How do you feel, you know, uh, simplify uh, things? Previously, I would I kind of believed that, you know, okay, technical documentation also means that you need to be a little snazzy with your English and your vocabulary it has to be a little more top-notch and then I realized it doesn't matter. Simply it does not matter. The more simpler you can make it, the better your documentation, the more effective it is. So I think uh, that was a great learning for me in the initial days.
0: Fantastic. So, can you share a documentation-related resource you have consumed recently?
1: I am constantly on uh, I'd rather be writing.com. I think -hmm. it's a great uh, uh, site where, uh, you know, this person who runs the blog posts a lot of updates and discusses uh, his insights on the future of documentation and uh, what's going on in uh, that particular uh, space. So that resource, I I think, is, I find it uh, really useful. Uh, There's a lot of discussion also happening on that front, mainly because uh, I'm also kind of interested on um, how the space is changing with API documentation and how different authors are adapting to different kinds of tools to get that done. And I'd rather be writing.com. I think does a fantastic job of covering a lot of this information in one place.
0: Fantastic. So we did have um, Tom as one of our guests for the podcast uh, ninjas. So you mm-hmm. should definitely hear to his episode. You might enjoy it. Yeah. Great.
1: Another probably a problem website is, there is this, I don't know if it's still being updated, but it's a site called the content wrangler.com. Mm-hmm. So this site again is not focused mainly on tech talks. It focuses on tech talk, content writing and UI UX. So you know, that's a wonderful and very interesting site because uh, we kind of uh, need to realize that as technical writers, we also have a lot of overlap with what the UI UX uh, mm. folks are doing and any, uh, you know, innovations there will also need, will trickle down eventually into uh, our documentation. So this site also gives a lot of good insights about, uh, you know, how the both could uh, work as a cohesive unit.
0: Fantastic. That's great, Arad. Uh, so let's come to our final question, which is what is the one piece of documentation-related advice you would give to your 20-year-old self?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say I'm really 20 years old when I started documentation, but maybe if you'd ask me to go back to when I started documentation, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Uh-huh. I think uh, the biggest takeaway for me is uh, at, the, at that time, I had a perception that, you know, you'll become really great at this job if you know all the tools, if you, you know, know your XML tags and you know uh, you know, your product very well. I mean, all those things are definitely important, but uh, my biggest uh, advice I would go back and give myself uh, back in that time is to start building relationships with people. And uh, that's something which I've realized in my uh, career so far is that nothing is more important than the relationships with you build with the people, with your program managers, with your engineering crew, people whom you work with day in and day out, not necessarily just your team members. But everybody who comes in contact uh, as part of your job, that relationship building becomes very important. It could be just a hi, it could be uh, just a few casual words here and there. It could be attending their meetings or generally finding about uh, more curious about what products uh, or features they are working on. But that, I think, uh, goes a really long way. I mean, in my own experience, I've seen that initially, I wouldn't be really too bothered. I would get one or two emails from people saying, hey, you know what, we are starting off the dev process. Maybe in the next three months, we'll get you roped in and will get started. So I wouldn't, I would just sit back and not do anything for the next three months uh, about that uh, product. And, uh, you know, as in when it came in, I used to, you know, kind of uh, uh, roll with the punches sort of a uh, uh, mentality. But eventually I realized that once I started uh, being involved in their uh, regular meetings, finding out what features they've been developing, what are challenges they are facing, it kind of made the, the process of documentation not only very simple uh, for me at the end. But it also kind of built to create relationships uh, with the team. So initially, sometimes, I mean, this is common to all uh, big organizations where we have a documentation team. There is some pushback. There's a bit of hostility sometimes between uh, different teams. So this completely vanished when that relationship power building went on. A very healthy sort of uh, uh, collaborative atmosphere began to take shape. And now I can uh, happily say that you know, I have a pretty good working relationship with most of my uh, folks who with my teams. So much so that if there is some sort of a product or some sort of a feature, even though I might not be aware, sometimes the engineer or the PM themselves will contact me and say, hey Raj, you know what, we've been kind of contemplating doing this, so we thought we'll let you know what do you think might be the doc impact or can we do something better to document this. So that relationship building is absolutely essential, I think, and I think that will be my biggest takeaway.
0: Fantastic, Raj. I think that's a very, very valid point, uh, not only for documentation, to excel in any areas. Uh, whatever you do, um, you need to have good people around you and um, appreciate what they do, and uh, you will get your appreciations done. So, marvellous. So, thank you, Raj, for sharing your unique experience and journey. It's been an absolute pleasure connecting with you today. And any last few words before you say bye to our audience? Um, Anything to add?
1: Uh, thank you so much, Gauri. First of all, for you know inviting me to come and talk here, and also uh, it's it's real. It feels really good to you know kind of uh, know that uh, there is uh, somebody as en- enthusiastic as uh, you and your team who want to kind of talk more about uh, technical writing and about technical communication in general, and have like a podcasting space where we discuss ideas. And I think that's that's wonderful. And uh, The more we collaborate, the more we share knowledge, we can use this platform and our knowledge and skills as technical writers to definitely contribute and make the world a better place. So thank you so much for everything that you do.
0: Thank you, Raj, for for your valuable uh, thoughts and uh, ideas and uh, your experience uh, sharing especially with with us. So again, uh, have a good time and uh, stay safe. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Knowledge Based Ninjas podcast. Please head to iTunes, rate, and provide honest feedback on the podcast. See you next week.